I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I'd like to start off by asking a question. Do you desire to have abounding love, knowledge, and discernment so that you might live a pure and blameless life filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God? I hope the answer is yes. Today, as we continue to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, we will see that this is exactly what Paul prays for them. So if you can, I'd like you to stand for the reading of our text. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is God's word. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. In my last sermon, we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, where Paul mentions that he had been praying for the Philippians, that he had been giving thanks to God for their partnership in the gospel, and he also expressed confidence in God's plan for their lives, and he expressed how much he loved them. Now, Paul gives us insight into how and why he prays for them. Paul is setting an example for them and for us as to how we should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we will see what Paul prays for, why Paul prays for them, and what the ultimate goal is for his prayers. So let's start with looking at what Paul prays for. Look at verse 9 again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. First, Paul prays that their love may abound more and more. Now, it's important for you to understand that Paul is not talking here about romantic or sexual love or the love of a parent for a child or even the love of a sibling or a best friend. There is a different word in the Greek language for each one of those types of love. Here, Paul uses the Greek word agape, which is used by the writers of the New Testament to describe the divine love of God, his divine love for us, and the divine love that is given to us by God. Agape love is unconditional love, unselfish, other-centered love that leads to action 
even to sacrificial giving as an expression of that love. This is the love that we've already been celebrating today. This is the love that moved God to send his own son into this world to be a sacrifice for the sins of those that he loved. As I quoted earlier, John 3.16, God so loved agapeo, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, the Apostle John further describes this divine agape love in his first letter. In fact, keep your finger in Philippians chapter 1 and turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4. The passage is a little too large to put on the screen, so I'm just going to read it. 1 John chapter 4, I want to read verses 7 through 12. Speaking here of this divine love and the impact that it should have upon us. John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, every one of those uses is agape. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John, rightly so, is impressed that God would love us enough to give his own son. That God the Son would love us so much that he would give his own life for us. And he goes on to say, this is how we should love one another. Now this is not possible outside of the indwelling of God's Spirit. We cannot love this way on our own, in our own humanity, not possible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, with the indwelling presence of God, it is possible. When he says we are to love one another, he's speaking of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in order to do this, we must be in fellowship with them. And they with us in order to express in tangible ways our unconditional, sacrificial love for them. We must be in fellowship. We must spend time with one another. As God has loved us in tangible, sacrificial ways, so we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in tangible, sacrificial ways. In fact, turn back one page to 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18, and John here describes 
this kind of love that should be seen among brothers and sisters in Christ. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What does that mean? Does that mean I have to be crucified for my brothers and sisters in Christ because that's what Jesus did for me? Well, if necessary, yes. But there's not a lot of crucifixion going on today. Thank God. But we're called to lay down our lives. In other words, to do what we need to do to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on to say this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So it's, it's very clear that the love that John is referring to, and in our text, the love that Paul is referring to, is a giving love, a sacrificial love. This is not a sentimental love. This is not a feeling. This is an action, an action that is prompted by the need of others. That's the kind of love that Paul wants to see in the church in Philippi. And you know very well it's the kind of love that Christ wants to see in his church today. Amen? It's the kind of love that God wants to see in Christian family fellowship. So what Paul prays for, first of all, is that their love may abound. Paul knows that those he's writing to have already experienced the unconditional, sacrificial love of God through their being saved by him. He also knows that God is the source of that same love being poured into them. He had described that in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 5.5, 5, Paul wrote, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, this agape love, this divine love is poured into us by God himself. All believers are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and he is the source of this love. And he pours this love into us. Now, this prevents any one of us from saying, I cannot love him or her. I just do not have it in me to love them. Well, if you are an adopted, spirit-filled child of God, then yes, you do have it within you to love because he is the source. He will supply that love. But here is the key. We must be pouring out what he is pouring in. That is why Paul prays that their love may abound more and more and more. They have already experienced God's divine love in their lives, but he wants them to become 
conduits of that love. He wants God to cause their love to abound towards one another, towards others, and more, and more, and more, and more. Can we love too much? Apparently not in God's economy. We are not created to be hoarders of God's love. We're created to be givers of God's love. We are not created to be reservoirs of God's love, God's love, but channels of God's love to others. You want God to continue to pour his love into your heart? Then continue to pour his love out to others. It is an inexhaustible supply. God will provide all that we need. You know, Jesus often spoke about the need for us to demonstrate agape love towards one another. Let's look at just one example in the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, that's a pretty high bar that's set for us, isn't it? Because we've already seen what Jesus did to love us. He humbled himself, became like us, born in that lowly manger that's depicted over here in this nativity scene. And baby Jesus there on, on Mary's lap. Helpless. I loved that line in the song. The one who created Mary is now being cared for by her. The creator of the universe becomes a helpful babe for us. We are to love others as he has loved us. And that includes laying down his life for us. We should be willing to lay down our lives for others. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have this kind of love for one another. We're not just talking about, you know, a flutter in the heart. We're not just talking about, oh, it's so good to see you. We're talking about what can I do to help you? What can I do to encourage you? What can I do to minister to you? Paul's desire as a pastor was to see God's love being displayed in the lives of those entrusted to his care. And I want to tell you something. Your pastors and elders have the same desire for our church. That's what we want to see here. We want to see God's love being demonstrated between the brothers and sisters that God has placed under our care. Our desire is that your love may abound more and more and more. Not only your love for Christ, but your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Paul also prays that they may abound in knowledge and all discernment. Their expressions of love were to be according to knowledge and discernment. The word for knowledge here, epigenosis in the Greek, refers to intimate knowledge or advanced knowledge. Paul here is referring to the spiritual knowledge that comes through the word of God. Biblical love, listen to me, biblical love is anchored in the truth of Scripture. We are not to act just upon our feelings, but we are instead to live according to the teaching of God's Word. Knowledge of the Word comes through prayer, through the assistance of the Holy Spirit, and through Bible intake. We cannot obtain biblical knowledge and discernment without practicing Bible intake. Without hearing the word, reading the word, studying the word, memorizing the word, and meditating upon the word. The five means of Bible intake. Those are vital for us to have knowledge and discernment. And we need discernment. Because only by having discernment will we be able to choose between what is good biblically and what is not. Remember, we are never to love the things that God hates. But that is exactly what our culture wants us to do. Our culture wants us to love the things that God hates. And we need knowledge and the discernment that comes from that knowledge, the knowledge of God's word. We must never affirm that which God condemns. You will not see a rainbow flag in front of our church. You will not see us supporting abortion on demand. You will not see us performing same-sex marriages. We cannot compromise what God's word teaches. His standards must be our standards. And in fact, often the most loving thing that we can do is to confront someone with biblical truth. And that requires knowledge and discernment. Paul passionately prayed, not only for the saints to abound in love, but to do so with spiritual knowledge and discernment. In some religious circles, people sometimes pit love which they define as non-judgmental affection. They pit that against spiritual discernment. They will say something like this, love is blind. But that is not true of God's love. Nor should it be true of our love. We need knowledge of God's holy standards in order to have spiritual discernment. Some churches 
proclaim that, quote, doctrine divides, service unites. Or doctrine divides, but love unites. But Scripture makes it clear that we must have both. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus praised the church at Ephesus for its doctrinal vigilance, but he rebuked them for their lack of love. Conversely, speaking to the church at Thyatira, Jesus commended its love and then condemned its compromise with false teaching and practices. So it's clear we as a church need both love and biblical knowledge and discernment to know how to love properly. We must not express love for the things that God hates, nor fail to express love for the things that God loves. Amen? And God loves our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul prayed that their love may abound with knowledge and discernment, and we need to do the same today. We should passionately pray this for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we've looked at what Paul prays for. Now we will look at why Paul prays for them. Verses 10 and the first part of verse 11. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Why Paul prays for them. The opening clause of the prayer is followed by two purpose clauses signified by the word so. So that you may approve what is excellent and so to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness. Here are the reasons why Paul prays for them. First, that they would approve what is excellent. The first outcome of God's gift of abounding, discerning love is that believers have the capacity to approve what is excellent. Now, Paul's choice of words here paints a picture of a discriminating buyer trying out competitive products, putting them to a test before purchasing the one that is excellent. The term here, approve, indicates a proving process. Today, we might think of test driving several automobiles before committing to purchase one, especially making that large of an investment. We want to decide which one is best. We must examine our options to see which passes the test. And so we need to examine our options to see what is the best way to express biblical love towards others. When Paul speaks of that which is excellent, he would have included that which is in line with God's word, with, God, with God's law, that which is morally excellent. Later, he will adv advise the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, 
whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Paul wants them to have knowledge and discernment to be able to sort out what are the very best options or what are the most essential issues. Sort those from the less significant ones. Paul wants them and us to be able to discern what are the essentials for us to pursue and encourage others to pursue as well. We know that too often, <laughs> we are prone to major on the minors. And that can really impact the unity of the church and impact our ability to love one another and partner together for the sake of the gospel. Paul had to deal with that very thing many times. And on a couple of occasions, he had to correct the, the Christians, both in Corinth and in Rome, because they condemned fellow believers over an insignificant issue of eating meat that had been offered to idols. Such meat broke no command of God, so condemning others over such food displayed an inability to distinguish between issues upon which God's word is clear from personal preferences or opinions that should be left to the liberty of each believer's conscience before God. We need the knowledge of God's word and the discernment that comes from that knowledge so that we can know what things are essential and what things are not. What things must we hold to as brothers and sisters in Christ? And what things are left up to a person's conscience? I know of some churches where they teach that any consumption of alcohol is sinful. That no Christian should drink. And that's fine if that's what their church holds to and feels. But that is not what the God's word says. It does say that we are not to be under the influence of alcohol. But it doesn't forbid the drinking of alcohol. Now, should everyone drink alcohol? No. There are some people who should not because it's an issue for them. And should we flaunt our liberty before others? No. But this is one of those areas where they can major on the minors. We've had people come and go from this fellowship because they didn't agree with something. Some people don't agree with having a guitar in the worship service. Imagine that. If you use a guitar, you're not honoring God. Okay? Some people don't stay because we sing too many hymns. Right? I want to go to a church where they don't sing hymns. Right? I mean, there's, it's, the list is almost endless on the way that we major in minors. And, and let's be honest, we all do it, folks, in some way or another, because we all have opinions, don't we? But we need the Word of God to dictate to us 
what we approve and what we do not approve based on what God approves and what does not, God does not approve. And that's what Paul prays for, that they will approve of the things that God approves of and focus on the things that God declares are excellent and that they will encourage others to do the same, just as we should do in our day. Paul goes on to say that he prays for them to be pure or sincere and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. Here, Paul is praying for their personal and relational spiritual integrity. An integrity that will produce the fruit of righteousness in their lives. The word that Paul uses here that is translated pure in the ESV, I believe is better translated as sincere, which is found in the New American Standard, the NASB. This word speaks to integrity rather than perfection. It is Paul's prayer that there would be no hypocrisy present in their lives or in ours. He is calling them to be transparent, to be sincere. In Paul's day, the largest industry in the Roman Empire was pottery. And the finest pottery was very thin and fragile and would often crack in the oven during firing. Cracked pottery should have been thrown away, but dishonest dealers would fill in the cracks with a hard wax that would blend in with the pottery and be undetectable when painted or glazed unless you held it up to the sunlight. Then you would be able to see it. So honest dealers would mark their pottery as sincera, meaning without wax. That's the Latin that we get sincere from, sincere. Paul is saying here that the flaws in the lives of believers must not be concealed. You know, the Bible talks about the need for us to confess our sins one to another. That's a practice we don't relish, isn't it? But why is that? Because if we don't, we're covering it up. We're filling in the cracks. We're glazing over it so no one will see it. Paul is saying that the flaws in the lives of believers must not be concealed. Listen to me, our lives are not perfect, and they will not be perfect until the day of Christ. So if you think, I need to cover up my imperfections for my brothers and sisters in Christ because I need to appear perfect to them, wrong. I'll let you in a little secret. We know you're not. No matter how well you conceal it or attempt to, we know you are not perfect. Why? Because we are not either. And part of being abounding in love for one another is that we understand this. 
We all have sins and flaws, and we should not cover them up. We should be sincere. Because hypocrisy will prevent the flow of God's love through us. God can work through the lives of believers, no matter how flawed, as long as they are honest. But God hates hypocrisy. Paul wants the Philippians and all the saints to be honest and without hypocrisy. He also desires that we live blameless, meaning without stumbling or causing to stumble. Blameless expresses the goal of spiritual integrity. It carries the meaning of not falling into sinful conduct and not causing others to do so. Now, this is not a call to absolute perfection because that is only true of God. Amen? But it does call us as believers to do all that we can to live lives of spiritual integrity and to guard against causing offense or causing others to stumble into sin due to our examples or our influences. And this is another way, area, where if we are sincere and we expose our needs to others, then they can surround us in love and help us in these areas in which we are tempted. We are not meant to live the Christian life alone, but in community, in true community, the community of brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's prayer for them is that they would be so filled with love for God and for other believers that they would live lives of integrity and they would guard against causing others to sin. And this will be possible if their lives and ours as well are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 11, we are called to be fruitful Christians. Now, this does not refer to the righteousness of Christ that is credited to our account upon salvation. This is referring to the fruit of that righteousness, the fruit that is born in our lives as we live for Christ. It is the fruit of love and good deeds that righteousness produces in our lives. And this fruit is to be seen. It is to be demonstrated in the innumerable acts of kindness and service to which every believer in Christ is called. Remember that Jesus himself called all of his disciples to bear this kind of fruit. We find that in John chapter 15, and I'd like us to look at verses 1, 4, 5, and 8. John 15, you're familiar with this passage. Verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Right? God, the Son, is the source of the fruit. We must be connected to him. We connect to him through all of the various means of grace that God has given us to connect to him. Through prayer, through worship, through the word of God through fellowship, through observing the Lord's Supper together. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we're not going to bear fruit. The more we're connected to Christ, the more we are capable of bearing fruit. And then in verse 8, Jesus says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The fruit of love and knowledge and discernment. The fruit of making wise choices. The fruit of helping one another and not causing others to stumble. That fruit should be visible. It should be obvious that we are different than those that don't know Christ. We should be lights in this present darkness, abounding in the love of God. The Apostle Paul wants to see the saints filled with this fruit of righteousness that comes through their relationship to Christ and the means of grace that he has made available to us. By our utilizing all the means of grace, we will bear much fruit and reach the ultimate goal of Paul's prayer. And what is that ultimate goal? Glorifying the Father. Paul's desire for the Philippian believers and for all believers is that our lives would bring glory and praise to God. And this is the chief end of man. This is the purpose for which we were created, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Not only did God create us for that purpose, He then recreated us in Christ for that purpose, causing us to be born again for that same purpose. You were not born twice so that you could live for yourself. We were born twice so that we would live to the glory and praise of God. Now it is true that by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Salvation is all of God. But it goes on to say that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them or live in them. So good works, the fruit of righteousness, is not optional. It is something that God expects. We have been saved by the grace of God to do the works that he has determined for us that will result in his praise and in his glory. And that's what Paul wanted for the church in Philippi. Remember these words spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, our human nature is that they would see our good works and glorify us. But that changes if we purposefully live 
for Christ and not for ourselves. If we are doing the good works for his glory rather than for ours. And this is something we should be seeking. Amen? Praying that God would help us. So here is the goal. That we would glorify our heavenly father just as Jesus did. Just as Paul did. Just as the other disciples did. By living our lives not for ourselves. But for him. And for his glory. So this is Paul's prayer for the believers. That they would have abounding love, knowledge, and discernment so that they might live pure and blameless lives filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. And this is my passionate prayer for you as your pastor. And I hope that it is your prayer for yourself for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and for myself, for Pastor Don, for Elder Eric. Together, let us pray that God would be glorified through us as we love and encourage one another to love and good deeds. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you.